Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Time for another Bible Geek with your host, Robert M. Price. Uh, this time I can be pretty lazy I, th- because uh, the uh, listeners have done most of the work for me. And uh, I'm proud of them for the uh, brilliance of the ideas that I'm about to share with you from them. Uh, let's see, let's see. Uh, this one is uh, from Chris the Weasel Jansen in Athens, Georgia. I was listening, oh, Georgia, right. I was listening to the Bible Geek episode today where a listener asked about some of the traditional arguments for the existence of God, and I'd like you to take on my own hair-brained idea. I was thinking about the several experiments done recently with organized groups praying for some beneficial effect, usually healing from a medical procedure, and which showed no real effects Of course, I thought a believer might respond to this by arguing that God should not be tested. I believe there is scriptural precedent for this, and that the Almighty had purposely withdrawn his influence in order to confound the experiment. It makes sense in a way, that is, if we could measure the effect of prayer, it would only be a scientific problem to measure which prayers were best, which name God preferred, etc., and this would seem uh, rather limiting to a transcendent being. However, that made me consider further that if a believer did take this position, we could still say that God specifically does not intervene when the results are being measured scientifically. It's almost like a theological quantum mechanics. God only exists if he is not observed. But this made me go a step further and wonder if one couldn't make the following assertion. The best evidence for God's existence is that there is no existent evidence for God's existence. That is to say, if he were to be measured, he would no longer be transcendent, infinite, etc. I know it seems like an odd paradox, but I believe this is one. Uh, I believe this is one. Uh, wait a minute. An, Odd paradox. Um, I believe this is one that would be the one exception to the notion of falsifiability. I mean, if I say an elephant is standing outside my window, it's easy to show that it's not the case. But with God, his very nature would be consistent with that which cannot be measured. I should make clear I'm an atheist, and I don't think this is necessarily a compelling argument, but I do feel like it would be worth considering. What saith the geek? 
Well, uh, actually, it seems to me that you're right to invoke the criterion of falsifiability, but uh, it uh, backfires on God uh, because uh, it appears that uh, if this is the case, one cannot name a difference it would make whether God existed or not. Uh, God's existence would seem to be compatible with any and everything, any and every result. Uh, it uh, God existing would look for all intents and purposes just like God not existing. So the question then becomes, as in all cases of falsifiability, not whether it is true or false that God exists, but whether it means anything at all to affirm that God exists, or it doesn't. It just becomes meaningless gibberish, pious glossolalia. Uh, now, a couple of uh, items here. The very notion that God would answer prayer is mythological uh, in the sense that Bultmann, well, and I think Tillich pointed out, you are objectifying God as a kind of a heavenly Santa Claus, right? He is listening to your prayers. In fact, there was a good example of this last night on the latest episode of Preacher, where uh, this guy um, uh, brings out these audio tapes that had been made of Jesse Custer's prayers throughout his life, and he plays them back. Uh, I had to call in some favors to get them, etc., but uh, they're on tape. Uh, like um, that, in, in fact, the whole shtick of that fascinating show is that uh, God is a kind of being that you can tell if he's missing, Right, and uh, that um, he, uh, though, though they really should get further into that, how is the world really different with, without God? And uh, that God could be looked for and theoretically found, and in fact, Jesse thinks he has found him, but didn't recognize him at the time. Uh, and um, so it, God is completely objectified in in preacher because it's just pushing it a little bit, the standard way in which God is objectified as a person, even if you don't think of him having bodily form, as the ancients did, by the way. Uh, now, Tillich, for the same reason, says that uh, God does not, quote, exist, unquote, because that is that would be saying, not implying, but saying that God is a thing, a being, even the supreme one, but not being itself. To exist uh, is to stand out from, etymologically. I mean, that's the meaning of the word. Well, what does it stand out from? It is distinguished from the ground of all being, temporarily. And uh, it is the ground of all being that must be identified with God, and which is no novelty with Tillich. I mean, uh, Aquinas says that, though I don't know that he uh, is uh, consistent in working out all the implications, but uh, he pretty well saw him. Uh, it's it's funny to me uh, the the um, attacks Tillich received from conservative theologians as a modernizer and an innovator. 
uh, not that that would necessarily be bad, uh, are unfounded because he's simply going back to the wellsprings of the Christian philosophical theological tradition, and this is one of those cases. So, um, if if you could prove God existed, it wouldn't be God, as you say. That that doesn't prove that God does exist, because the same problem would uh, come into effect there. I mean, it, it um, if you could prove it, you wouldn't have God, whatever you did prove. You might be able to prove that Zeus existed or something, or the Old Testament Jehovah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think falsifiability renders the question moot and meaningless. Interesting. Ah, let's see. Okay, now this is uh, another goodie and uh, really makes you think. And in fact, it makes me think maybe this guy ought to be the host of the Bible Geek. Uh, let me find the uh, the name at the end of this. Uh, rather long but worthwhile item. Michael Callahan. Yeah, let's see what the Archangel has to tell us. Um, yeah, my question involves the parable nudging symbolism and winks at the reader that Mark seems fond of. I'm also curious about what can be confidently said about the Jerusalem 7 described in Acts 6. Regarding the symbols, Richard Carrier pointed out the mytho-symbolism of Jesus pairing with Barabbas, son of the father, in the trial before Pilate as being a playing out of the Yom Kippur atonement ritual, where the Jews are pictured essentially picking the wrong goat. Now, I gotta hand it to Richard, that never occurred to me. Uh, the, uh, I mean, others have said that like they're picking the wrong Jesus, uh, and it's sort of docetic and all of that. But the the uh, parallel to the scapegoat ceremony that that is really good and new to me. I appreciate you mentioning it. Anyway, Michael says similarly, the wrapping of the cleansing of the temple with the otherwise odd cursing of the fig tree and its resultant withering. Here, Jesus' curse makes sense as a symbol of what he's about to do at the temple. The tree was showing no fruit, even though it wasn't the season for it, which is an odd expectation, but perhaps not symbolically. So it's one of those things that makes me think Mark had no idea of conditions in Palestine. Anyway, uh, so Jesus casts the curse on the tree, then goes to cleanse the temple and makes statements against the temple that expand the meaning of the parable, which is then immediately followed by the acknowledgement that the tree tree is dead. These few examples got me interested in Mark's allegorical tendency, so I listened to Mark about a dozen times, not a bad idea, and began to hear all sorts of themes developing, like the first will be last involving Peter. So 
One big one I feel I caught on to was the meaning of the two feeding miracles. I've heard you comment numerous times that, don't be afraid to use the term ad nauseum, uh, that uh, these similar miracles are in fact the same and merely represent a clumsy collation of source materials. While this may be the case, I think it is apparent that Mark has utilized the two feedings to serve as juxtaposed parables of the Jewish dispensation and the Gentile one. Ultimately, to point out to the reader via the prop disciples the fact that the Gentile church is given equal if not superior authority to the Jerusalem church. This generic identifier, Gentile Church, seems odd to me, but if something like this was considered separate and distinct by the late year of Mark's authorship, could this group be represented by the seven deacons we find listed in Acts 6, which sound like heads of, Helen, of uh, Hellenized churches rather than really some nice Jewish guys that were constructed? conscripted to ladle soup for old ladies. I think the names sort of give it away. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, uh, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus from Antioch. Um, while Acts 6 seems contrived to make a fictive pedigree for these church leaders, I think this anchoring shows the existence and importance of these seven, which is why I think they apply to this theory of the miracle feedings. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. So all that being said, here's the thing I'm sure I'm not the first to notice. The narrator tells us the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf. Jesus tells them, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The disciples discuss this with one another, saying, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Mark eight seventeen through 21. And cut. No explanation. That's the end of the scene. Is this not an obvious invitation for the reader to figure out? out what on earth the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod has to do with how many baskets of bread were left over? If you were in that boat, can you imagine no one saying something like, um, Jesus, you got me. Can you just explain what you mean? I mean, I left my boat and family for this, for Christ's sake. When he asked the question, what does he mean? When he asked the question, do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but failed to see, ears but failed to hear? He's reiterating Isaiah 6.10, referenced before at Mark 4.11, as his reason for teaching with parables and repeating the narrator's line above, 
for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were, hearts were hardened. And now it's about the miracles involving said loaves, no less. So it seems the disciples don't get that Jesus is pointing out these, that these miracles were in fact parables. Uh, that's why they wonder to each other about their one loaf of bread, which is something literal, when Jesus is telling us, the readers, he's speaking figuratively. So I think we should take the hint and not be as dense as them. We need to understand these two miracles themselves figuratively as a parable. Jesus himself is giving us the green light. So here's what I think is going on. The leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. The leaven recalls Paul's metaphor in his letter to the Corinthians and Galatians um, about Jewish law or custom being pushed. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little <clears throat> leaven leavens the whole lump. And symbolizing boasting, malice, and evil, your boasting is not good. Do you, know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Uh, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this leaven is a metaphor for the corruption of the new faith with religious customs or letting the old corrupted self influence the new. The feeding of the 5,000 explained. The people run out, I'm sorry, the people run out ahead of Jesus equals the Jews that were awaiting the Messiah. The people are told to sit down in groups of 100s and 50s equals how Moses divided the Israelites to be governed by Jethro's advice. Five loaves equals five books of the Pentateuch. Two fish equals two laws, law of Moses plus Jewish law codes, the Talmudic and rabbinic material. Twelve baskets of bread and fish equals twelve tribes of Israel or the twelve apostles of the Jerusalem church. It's mixing the Jews' fish with the gospel-slash-body of Christ bread. Those who could buy loaves locally equal home turf Galilee-slash-Jerusalem-slash-ethnic Jews, etc., the first to receive the gospel. Desolate place at a late hour equals the Jewish system in its final hour, like the fig tree out of season. Feeding of the 4,000 explained. We're now on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, a choice contrast. The people had been following for three days equals Easter weekend, no doubt, death and resurrection. Seven loaves equal seven laws of Noah, 
Noachian laws for the Gentiles, kept on, uh, and they kept on giving them to the disciples, an ongoing spiritual revelation, um, uh, corresponding to spreading the faith. Few small fish equals perhaps the few laws, besides Noachian, still considered applicable to the Gentile believer. Seven large baskets of pieces equals the seven deacons listed in Acts 6. Uh, and keep in mind the distribution of food in both cases. Those that came from a long distance equals Gentiles, the last to receive the gospel. So by Jesus echoing the narrator, are your hearts still hardened? Narrator, Mark 6.50, Jesus, Mark 8.17, and that a hardened heart means you can't understand, as described in Isaiah 6.10. He is pointing up their issue of exclusive rights and pushing Jewish customs on new believers, the children mentioned later. Right? What else could it mean? Um, some of the details are not uh, absolutely uh, clearly uh, definitive there, but, but none are implausible, and the basic uh, comparison you make, I, I think, is is very sound. Uh, you, you're right. It seems like uh, the ball is thrown into the reader's court. Uh, don't you get it? Uh, and uh, the seven and the twelve, uh, you know, that that alone really would make your point that it it's more than coincidence that we're talking about um, the. Uh, uh, the uh, leadership of Jewish and Hellenistic Christianity, it's part of Luke's uh, papering over, whitewashing tendency to make them simply flunkies of the uh, Twelve, especially since he goes on to um, recount evangelistic uh, adventures of two of them, and um, Stephen and Philip. Uh, the, these guys are not uh, just waiters, right? Um, and... Uh, the um, also you might point out, as you do, the twelve tribes of Israel, and the seven uh, that could uh, be shorthand for the seventy nations. That contrast is drawn by Luke in a similar way when he doubles the mission charge. Right, he takes the Mark and, and Q mission charge to the twelve, but adds uh, pretty much the same thing addressed to the seventy. Now, who are they? Well, that is very clearly a way of saying first to the Jews, then the Gentile mission. And you're pointing out similar imagery. And uh, I think you, you really uh, have a great idea there. Maybe you want to write it up in, uh, formally in detail and submit it to a journal somewhere, Michael. Really great. Okay. Um, Kelly says, after viewing the total solar eclipse, my mind was blown when I saw the corona of the sun. Can you comment on what it would have been like for Jews in Palestine to see something like this during the time of Christ or earlier? How did their cosmology account for the moon, sun, and stars? And did they have any conception of the moon and the sun overlapping? Would it cause panic and prognostications about the end of the world? Were certain eclipses referenced in the Bible more than others? 
My brother always feared the blood moon, and on occasion, uh, occasions in which he saw it, he swore off prodigal living for at least an entire week. I believe the blood moon is a lunar eclipse in which the moon occupies the shadow of the earth. Um, the blood color is apparently due to the reddish sunset around the perimeter of the perimeter of the earth casting light on the moon. Well, uh, the uh, Babylonians had uh, long before this learned to calculate uh, when eclipses would be, and uh, and and uh, they they did see ominous significance in it, uh, the signaling the death of kings or things like that. And how could they have done that if they didn't have some genuine astronomical lore? Well, they didn't yet know that the um, planets revolve around the sun. But um, even given their adjustment with the retrograde motion of the planets, as in Ptolemaic uh, astronomy, uh, they they observe the regularities. They might have explained them differently. Like, for instance, according to Ptolemaic astronomy, the Earth was in the center, and the Sun, the Moon, and the other planets each occupied like, or were set like a jewel into a, a tr transparent crystal sphere arranged um well, like concentrically, if that's the proper word. I mean, one inside the other uh, going up. And so they may well have understood that it was the moon uh, getting in the way of the sun. They just had a different flight path in mind. Uh, so that isn't that odd. But as to whether eclipses are even mentioned in the Bible, uh, Joel, in a passage, uh, I think, quoted by Revelation, speaks of the sun becoming black as sackcloth and the moon turning to blood. Well, those are tempting possible references to the two types of eclipses you mentioned. Uh, and uh, in Revelation, and possibly in Joel, these eclipses are given as signs of the end of the world. Uh, but, of course, they couldn't have thought that generally, right, uh, that uh, every time the—I mean, they must have known that plenty of eclipses had happened and the world was still here, so it wouldn't automatically have suggested to them, uh-oh, this is it. Uh, but if the conditions were right and on other grounds, they thought, well, this has got to be the end of the world coming, as one sometimes hears people say today, then uh, it could be that the, the ones mentioned in Revelation especially— were supposed to be the celestial phenomena that uh, um, would uh, herald the end of the world pretty soon. The stars falling from the sky in uh, Mark 13, well, that, you know, that may indicate meteorites or shooting stars. And of course, that happened fairly often. And people knew that didn't automatically signal the end of the world. But you can certainly say when the world ends, there will be amazing celestial phenomena, even if they're not unprecedented. So if they're um, in the Bible, that's probably where. Julius Africanus mentions, 3rd century, I think, uh, he says that um, the darkness at noon at the crucifixion 
was said by Thallus, who could have been one of three different ancient guys we know of, said that that uh, this darkening was uh, an eclipse. And he said, well, that can't be correct because Passover, you know, that's same time as, as the crucifixion of the Gospels, is at the time of the, the full moon, so there couldn't very well be an eclipse. We don't know if Thallus was actually meaning to explain the darkness at the death of Jesus, or if uh, Julius Africanus thought he was and figured, oh, he must be talking about the uh, the the uh, darkening of the sun at the cross, and uh, well, it couldn't have been an eclipse. We we don't know because we don't have the Thallus original. Uh, let's see, let's see. Mark, no, I'm sorry, Matt got the wrong evangelist. Matt Thompson says, I have a question regarding the Apostle Paul. If he did, in fact, know the apostles and James, the brother of Jesus, would that be considered reliable evidence that gospel accounts are more or less accurate? I don't find the biblical narrative particularly convincing overall, but I have problems refuting this part when I'm discussing the issue with Christians. Well, it certainly would not uh, vindicate anything in the gospels. Right, except possibly in uh, Mark uh, six three, I think it is, where it lists brothers of Jesus in his hometown, and James is one of them. Uh, but uh, that really has nothing to do with the various stories of of the Gospels. Now, if that is what it means, and that's the way you're putting it, right? If Paul uh, did actually know a brother of Jesus and his immediate disciples, wouldn't that give some credence to the historical Jesus? Yeah, it would. That would be a definitive argument, I'd say. Um, but the, the problem is there is real reason to wonder if that's what brother of the Lord is supposed to mean in Galatians, uh, despite the sneering of apologists who would naturally sneer at it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, a, a genetic biological sibling. Uh, the, the brethren of the Lord in 1 Corinthians means some kind of missionary group, but whether they're supposed to be literal brothers of Jesus, there's no hint, and you can't simply assume it. You can't assume that it, it has a spiritual meaning, not a physical meaning either. It's just equivocal. Uh, we're not really sure. We know there was a whole category of missionaries referred to in 3 John and the Didache and in Matthew 25 um, called the brethren of the Lord. Uh, and so it's not at all unlikely that uh, the James reference, I meant none of the apostles except for the um, James, the brother of the Lord, that that does not refer to a blood brother. Um and beyond that, this section of Galatians, there's a good argument for that being an interpolation, partly because in his polemic against Marcion, Tertullian refers only to the visit of Paul to Jerusalem, and he's talking about the second one in our present text of Galatians, as if it is the only one which presumably 
in his copy of Galatians, it was, and that that would uh, cut out the uh, the reference to uh, to James, whoever he was. So it's the evidence is equivocal. It's a question of whether you fit it into a larger picture based on various bits of evidence that you can uh, a picture of the apostles, the relation between the founding figures of Christianity uh, that that uh, fits the tradition or uh, a rival one initiated by F.C. Bauer and then elaborated by Walter Bauer and others uh, where uh, we have very little in the way of real evidence to work from and uh, where even the, the, the Gospels as evidence for the life of Jesus is uh, highly dubious. So it, it makes sense to somebody depending on the historical uh, church historical frame of reference they bring to it could mean what conservatives say could be what uh, could mean what GA Wells said it means uh, it's really in in itself you can't really tell um speaking of radical criticism James Shore says I have a question uh, uh, as to whether there is a critical double standard on the treatment of the work attributed to Luke and that to Paul. Is Paul somehow special? Um, in studying the prologue of Luke, the critic Alfred Loisy notes how the language is indicative of one who is speaking from a historical point removed from the events, not from personal experience. He writes, when our author, Luke in quotes, speaks of matters established among ourselves, he does so because he has one, he has the sense of tradition and because the Christianity of his own day is in line of continuous descent from the age called apostolic. <laughs> but he lets us see clearly enough that the apostolic age is already far behind him. This is from Loisy's great book, The Origins of the New Testament, and you can find it. Uh, and, and these are the uh, on Kindle. It's locations 2404 through 2406. How can this exact same analysis not apply to the case of the person identified as Paul, who wrote, I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you? 1 Corinthians 11.2 the only way out of this that I see is that the term tradition refers specifically to the decor of females in worship settings referenced in the text, which would have been more traditional Judaic custom, um, a more traditional Judaic custom that he advocates, rather than generally to Christian dogmas or rites. But when I look at the Greek word uh, paradoses, uh, it is a plural dative, so it may not be so uh, redistricted as just the subject of women in worship. Yeah, yeah, you're right. This is one of the big arguments that uh, W.C. von Manen um, posed for the post-Pauline character of all the epistles ascribed to him. This retrospective view, and this is not the only uh, instance he discusses, where uh, what Paul says to his 
contemporaries, his own personal converts and protégés. It is a matter of traditions. I mean, commands, I can see that, but traditions? Or think of the um, retrospective look in elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, where he said, I planted, uh, Apollos watered, and God brought the, um, the, the harvest, and so on. He's looking back on stages of apostolic work in the church as if it's all over. And there are various things like that where, where it seems to be anachronistic. And, and now, once I mentioned this up at uh, New Testament class, I was teaching at the Unification Seminary, and um, one of the uh, professors there said that, well, yeah, you, you could be right, but on the other hand, Reverend Moon has established new traditions for us. Maybe that's what Paul, a church planter, had in mind, that he was saying, we're beginning a tradition here. Well, that could be, but then you wonder if uh, this writer believed the end of the world was at hand. Uh, would he say we're starting a tradition? Wouldn't that imply a trajectory further in the future? So I, I think you're right. I, I uh, accept the Dutch radical paradigm, and uh, it's well worth reading. Uh, you might want to take a look at uh, collection Ed Swoman and, and I did of uh, Van English writings uh, called A Wave of Hypercriticism. I think it's on Amazon, and, and it, it's got all kinds of eye-opening stuff by Van Manen. It's just amazing. Um, Okay, let's see. Well, that's about it for today. I guess I got another long one here next, and I, I believe I'll save that for next time. Thank you for being with me on The Bible Geek. And uh, um, I uh, mentioned on Facebook that my new book and essay collection called Atheism and Faithism has just appeared from Pitchstone Press. I have about 10 copies of it uh, in hand. I'd be willing to uh, sign one to you and send it to you if you fork over 25 bucks. And so please, uh, you can let me know and PayPal me the bucks um, at my email address, criticus, C-R-I-T-I-C-U-S, at AOL.com, and be sure to tell me your mailing address. So, okay, uh, but let me know first um, by email if you want it, because I don't want you to send money if I'm already out of them. So thanks for being with me on The Bible Geek today, and uh, we'll geek together again pretty darn soon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.